Hi, I'm Dr. Barbara Becker Holstein, psychologist and filmmaker, and I'm here with Debbie Stoltz Higgins, and we are doing something I think pretty charming and necessary and fun. And what we are doing is going to create an old time radio chat show. We don't have a total agenda. We'll probably interrupt each other. We may get silly. Whatever happens will happen, but it's going to be fun. We're going to tell you stories out of our past, maybe some of our relatives, maybe people we've known. And I think it's something we really need to do. Don't you think so too, Debbie, in today's world? Yeah, what happened was we did a show like this last week, and we were just doing it um, for experimental fun during the pandemic. And we got such great feedback on it that people liked the format because it brought nostalgia back. And Barbara, as I'm listening to people talk, they're thinking a lot about their past. And it's kind of fun to bring back the, the other times and different things to take our mind off of whatever news we yes. put on now or yes. whatever we hear. So uh, we got great feedback. So we figured we'd try it again. We'll see how it yeah. goes. We're We're trying this thing. I agree with you 100%. Uh, I myself have found myself suddenly thinking about a particular summer or a particular friend. And there is a lot of nostalgia. And I become teary-eyed. And in some cases, I'm sad. I'm sad that I didn't call so-and-so or make more effort to write or try to get in touch and other times it's just oh my god it's so funny i can't believe i lived through this or oh it's such a mess how did i get through it but yes there's just so much going on in our minds i think we're trying to put the past together with the present and the future and um we're going to do some of that here just to tell you a very, very tiny bit about each of us, I'll start. I am a positive psychologist, been in practice over 35 years. And five years ago, after writing a couple of books for girls, I fell into a marvelous world that was, and the world was partly with Debbie Higgins. And it was a world of filmmaking and Debbie and I have been uh, partners in crime uh, many times since then, and she's produced um, many of my films, and uh, we've, we've become colleagues. And I think in many ways, when you hear some of our stories, you're going to understand how we have different but very similar backgrounds in a certain amount of energy and courage that we each have developed. And Debbie, you can tell a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, one thing about it that made me think about things a lot is I connected with people from the past that knew me as Debbie Stores, knew me in high school, knew me in all my different jobs, which has been very, very interesting. Um, we're going to talk about things that we did in the past, which Barbara had an interesting life, and I think mine is a rather <laughs> jack-of-all-trades. Oh. I don't know, master of nothing. I don't know, but it brought me into filmmaking. Um, I, I love film criticism. It's my number one thing. And um, I made some movies too. And I, I work in the indie business and um, in the film festival world as well. So all that is a long journey that we both had in our lives. So we have a lot to talk about. 
and I hope that um, you find it interesting. So, Barbara, what do you want? You want to start off with something? What do we just start off with here? What do you think? Well, uh, I was thinking about. Um, so well, just to get, get us back, I have low power. We may even have to stop and take a short break, but we'll live through it. Uh, I was thinking about some of our things in common, and um, now you will be telling the success story, and I'm going to tell the failure story, but it'll get us started. It's cute. Oh, okay. Barbara, Barbara, you know what we were talking about? Why don't we start with our bizarre modeling careers? How does that sound? Okay, that sounds you good. You go first. All right. Okay, well, when I was a senior in high school, I begged my parents, begged them, begged them, begged them. I wanted to go to the Barbizon School of Modeling. Finally, my, my father said, okay, in my senior year. I don't think he understood it. I think he thought it was a bit uh, decadent and uh, maybe uh, somehow cheap in those days. You know, you just didn't display yourself in any way. But anyway, he finally gave in. And that involved a year of taking the train from where we lived in Norwalk to Manhattan and going to the School of Modeling, where I learned many lovely things about walking, posture, makeup, clothing. I want to mention one thing I hadn't told Debbie, and that was one time when I got off the train at Grand Central Station. Now I'm 17, I'm on my own. I had a beautiful tan wool coat on. I probably, um, but I was sad. I remember it was a day I just was not, whatever was on my mind, it's been lost. And a strange man came up to me out of the blue and put his hands, I guess you can see, and those that can't see, put his hands and went like in a shocking motion around my face. And he said, you'll be all right, you know? And then he left, he disappeared. And it was like, it really jarred me. But on the other hand, here was a stranger in New York that picked up exactly my mood. And whereas my mother would have probably been told, telling me, oh, come on, go get out of it. And my father wouldn't have even noticed. This man sort of did his own correction in one second. It was really quite funny. Anyway, I graduated the School of Modeling and the next summer, I got a job at March and Mendel uh, Coat Factory and uh, as a, a floor model. I had to be there, I think, by 9 o'clock or 9.30, eight-hour day, took the train from Norwalk. That meant getting up at 5.30 or 6. Let's say I was already wrecked by the time I got there. The other girls were established. Let's say they were players already. They knew how to swing around in their high heels and go from one coat to the next. And all the buyers came in from across the country. I was in agony. My feet hurt. I sort of stumbled through putting on the next coat. Long story short, the most pleasure I had in this whole two-week job is that as I walked to the train and I walked home later, I would look at myself in all the store windows. And I was at that age where, you know, it was a normal thing. I loved my haircut. How did I look? You know, this kind of thing. Meanwhile, I was the first girl they fired as soon as it didn't get busy. And that was the end of my modeling career. 
Now you're uh, on, and I know you have a different were, one. Those were the days, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, at least it's a great memory that it gave me. Yeah. Well, um, I had a whole different thing. I didn't have a whole body thing like Barbara did because um, I did go, and I'll explain that. Um, I went to school in Red Bank, and in Red Bank was Barbizon. And, of course, I went to Barbizon. I wanted to go. That was the thing girls did back in the 1960s, and it was like, the she-she, uh, you know, little modeling school, just like they went to Catherine Gibbs for secretarial school, which, believe mm -hmm. it or not, was the thing back then. And um, one thing I've always had, the rest of me's fallen apart, like the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz, but <laughs> I have bright hair. And um, my parents were both New Yorkers. They were the jet set. They were the original Mad Men people up in New York. They had big jobs, fancy. They were both beautiful people. And my mother would go and, you know, buy clothes in New York and go all over. And she took me to Elizabeth Arden, which was famous for its red door. It was called the red door. And you went there and you had your makeup done. And of course, they were getting maybe they would put makeup on a 16 year old girl so that you looked like you were 40 when you left. <laughs> but uh, through all those doings, I met Kenneth and Kenneth was a very, very famous hair person maybe not a family name like or a household name like Vidal Sassoon but he was very famous and my hair was down to the bottom of my rear end and I did a perfume ad for a perfume company called Carvan which is now out of business uh, I think Barbara's coat company's probably out of business <laughs> yes Good grief we're out of business Barb right almost <laughs> but not yet we're still going strong but um I did an ad for a perfume that they made called Ma Grief and I had my hair my face was green and my hair was like Medusa all green like snakes all big ringlets and curls so that that was it that was my modeling same and I did one thing and it wasn't my body and I said Barbara had her whole self I just had my hair and my face and that was it the big well, extent of my modeling career over well I did have one little perk that came out of March and Mendel and that was I was allowed to go back because I had worked there and look at the coat any coats they had left over and I got for ten dollars just a beautiful coat that was one of these things where they, you know, where they um, had the fuzzy inside. It was like a, a sheep or something. Like and it was, yeah, yeah, it was very attractive and it had fancy buttons and well worth $10, let me put it that way. So, right. uh, yeah, that was an interesting adventure. I remember and, having a maxi coat and putting a dollar a week on layaway to get it at Learners in Asbury Park. Can you imagine? But well, that's what we I, did. yeah, yeah. I can jump to something that we didn't talk about, but shows a little more my character. Uh, there was a department store in New York, and I actually have blocked on the name. It wasn't Macy's or Gimbel's, but it had great sales. Was it Bonwood Teller? No, it wasn't high level. It was more medium, you know, okay. for average. Anyway, one day I went there and they were having a sale and what they would do is pour all the garments on large tables, okay? You know, and this happened to be nightgowns of different types. Anyway, I found a gorgeous nightgown that looked like a gown 
And long story short, I bought a big ribbon to put around the waist that then hung down in the back. And I wore that gown to a senior prom at a prominent university. And I also wore it on my honeymoon. So wow. $4 it cost me. Sexy. Four. Do you remember what color it was? Yeah, it was a beautiful aqua color. My husband and I have even joked, too bad I didn't keep it. But Very cool. it was given away a long time ago. But I had fun. Were you a shopper? I, I love to wander um, around. Well, you know, I was, I remember when I, when I was making a lot of money and, and a job later on, I bought three fur coats in one year, which people don't wow. buy anymore. They don't even buy them. I bought, but I wasn't, um, I liked clothes. I liked things, but I, I shopped for crazy things that other people didn't care about, like horse bridles and saddles mm -hmm. and blankets because I was into horses. So I was more concerned if I was going to buy clothes, it would be new riding outfits, new riding coats, you know, stuff like that. I, I was kind of like not a tomboy, but a, a horse girl. Well, can I yeah, I can understand. And now I, I want to add my two failures on horses. And then you can tell something about your really beautiful days with horses. I loved horses. And at Girl Scout camp, I took lessons and stuff. But I, I didn't really have, I guess I wasn't good. You know, I was maybe if my, my family had had lessons for me. But, you know, going two weeks of camp just didn't do it. Yeah. So when I was older, in my early 20s, there was uh, something that we all did if you hadn't found your husband yet. And that is you'd go away like for a week into the Berkshires or somewhere in New England to a hotel that catered to the single crowd. And uh, one of these times I went to one of those hotels. And of course, there were three times as many girls as the fellows and the fellows were all half a head shorter than most of the girls and whatever it was a typical thing where, you know, you know, this is not going to be your week, but yeah. it was fun. The people were very nice and the food is marvelous. It was at any of these places, the bread basket alone, you could sustain yourself, you know, for two days at these hotels. And so we all went horseback riding one day. We took a couple of cabs little group that had formed and um it was a perfectly normal run place run very nicely and they tried to put the right people on the right horses well debbie i'm telling you everyone else started to trot around and take the little paths they have and stuff and my horse would not uh, would not move he wouldn't move <laughs> he must have sensed how terrified i was <laughs> and i thought I had to get off finally. It was humiliating. So he wanted to go back in the barn. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah, probably. he was sick of going out on the same trail. Yes, yes. And then the second story, my other failure is many years later. I'm talking now. Well, maybe 20 years ago, we went away with a couple friends. Again, a nice hotel, not nearly as nice as in the old days. It was nice. They had horses. We all decided to rent, you know, go out on the trail. And um, I was right up front behind the leader. I figured this will be smart. I'll go behind the gal who's leading us. And I had this glorious moment. You know how sometimes you just have a moment like you're saying to yourself, ah, my world has come together. I perfect. feel yeah. it's perfect. I'm great. Just at that second, the horse 
reared and went way up in the air on the front. And I was scared to death. And thankfully, the, the gal in front of me who was trained, you know, knew how to capture his um, harness. Right. The reins, you know, it's she right. got him. But that was it. I don't know. And that didn't happen to anyone else. I think I'll have to take you out riding again one time, Barbara. <laughs> We're going to have to relive that, you know? So uh, yeah. it, uh, that, those are good stories. And, you know, and, and the funny thing about it was back in the day, riding was a lot more um, common than it is now. I mean, now it's expensive and, and to find a stable, you know, is kind of difficult. It's Sure. I remember back when I was younger, there was the whole stretch of Highway 35 from uh, West Park Avenue to the Eaton Town, which was not a circle. And the only thing on there was Charlie's Bar and the Eaton Town Riding Stables. That was it. Really? Yeah, I remember. And uh, the mall was a, actually a revolutionary graveyard where the mall. Oh, my God. You mean they built it over the graveyard? Yes, they did. We used to go there and take the fences that were out there and put them across the gravestones and jump the horses. So this is... The type of kids we were we were i guess you could call that desecration we didn't think of it that way we thought of them as jump stanchions so because we were always jumping but um you know my family i'm sorry this was, a, this was the mammoth mall or the sea view that you're talking about oh no mammoth mall yeah because i heard that sea view was also built over in, that that was built over Indian graveyards. It could have been. I remember Seaview area, which was just a lot of sandy dunes. And we used to call that trail, um, we used to call that the desert and the Everglades because it had a pond too. And these were, so when we go for, leave the barn in the morning, we go, where do you want to ride today? The desert, the Everglades, the, you know, we'd have our names for all our trails. And they're all gone wow. now. There's buildings on all those places now, so. Um, I guess that's why I'm such a sucker for the past because I spent most of my life in the woods when I was a kid riding horses. And I really, really enjoyed it, you know? Tell them about your work at the uh, racetrack. Oh, well, if you're a kid and you want a job to make money um, and, you know, go beyond your $5 allowance that your parents give you or whatever, at 14, you get your working papers. I guess you still do. I don't even know. I'm, you know, do you get working papers at 14? Whatever. I think so. You so can got, if you want I them. I got them, and I, believe it or not, at, and you have to believe because it's true, I went over to Monmouth Park Racetrack, and I, you know, when you're 14, and you kind of have a little bit of savviness, in your mind, you think you look 22. You don't want to be 14, you know? <laughs> And of course I lied and I said, oh yeah, I'm going to gall gallop horses. I'm going to go in and I'm going to ride. And riding show jumpers and show horses is a little bit different than a racehorse. So I got on a horse. I, mean, yeah, I looked older than my age. I probably do now still. Anyway, um, I no, got you look younger now. Yeah, well, maybe on, on Zoom I do. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I got run off with terribly. And a long story short, one of, one of the really good jockeys felt sorry for me. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to ride a racehorse. So we had a family farm, uh, Holly Farm. We had horse farm. And uh, he taught me to ride. And then for six years, um, I ended up galloping horses at Monmouth. And my last year at Monmouth, 
um, I ended up being assistant trainer for a 36 horse public stable. And um, so I was on the track altogether six years, um, not just on the track. I mean, I was going to school in the winter. I was working at the farms in Colts Neck, breaking babies, breaking fillies that were young to get on the track. And I, I just made my income and I was doing very well. I was making $225 a week to start in 1968. And that was a lot of money back. That's fabulous. Yeah. So that's my story. And I love it. And I love that racetrack. Yes. And I love, ra I don't love racing. It's cruel to horses, but I remember those memories. They were wonderful. So. Those are great memories. Oh, yeah. 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 So what are we segueing into now, Barb? What are we going to talk well, about now? I'm thinking that, you know, in reality, for most of us, it's life is churning all the time and you know we just settle into one thing and then there's an eruption a disturbance and it is kind of the quality of life that we we have to be resourceful and we have to keep making remaking ourselves and rebooting and having courage so you have a good cry and you pull it together again and um it's making me think really of the story i told you about going to get the car for my father because it was a story of failure and strength and also a good story about the police. And, you know, I think it's a story relevant in a, in, in a segue, you know, just because it's relevant to life. Okay, so I'll tell it. So um, I had had a chance to go to Europe between my junior and senior years, and that was big then, a trip to Europe was like the biggest thing aside from an expensive wedding parents were offering a girl you know aside from college you know that kind of thing if they had the money if they could do it and so after of course now out, the modeling was way in the past and now i was begging my parents for that trip to europe which of course cost one-fifth of what it would cost today because we stayed with families the whole way through that my girlfriend's father was a, um, a marine uh, lawyer and knew people around the world. So it was quite workable. So anyway, we had gone to Europe and um, I was supposed to pick up the car that my father had ordered from a dealer. I don't know how it worked, but it was a Volvo. I had to sign off on it and um, not take it with me, but sign all the papers. And then it was to go on a uh, a ship to the United States. And when I got to, I think, Denmark, I did that. But the fellows in the um, car dealership said, no, you know, you're supposed to drive it 500 miles. And, you know, I'm a 20-year-old and my girlfriend had already left because she got sick. I'm all alone in Europe. I've never been there before. And now I'm supposed to take this car. I hardly know how to do a clutch. And I'm supposed to drive it 500 miles. So in the course of one day, I pick up two different fellows. I don't, I don't even remember now how I found them. But each one I dropped like three hours later. I was hoping I'd meet, you know, my, my, prince. my, my <laughs> prince charming. And it would work out and we would have this love affair somewhere in Norway or something. I don't know what, but of course, I dumped them. <laughs> and uh, after just agony of stopping in the street with the horns behind me and everything i went back and i said i, I just can't do this and the, 
And they said, oh, well, that's all right. Don't worry. Look, we'll take it for you. Don't worry. You're not going to have to pay any extra, blah, blah, blah. They knew, you know, they knew how to soothe a young woman. I was soothed. I left. I get home. And within a couple of, uh, whatever, a week or two of adjusting back at home, my father says, you have to go to Nor um, not Norway, you have to go to New York and, and New Jersey and get the car. You know, this is part of the bargain. I paid for you to go to Europe and you've got to go get the car. So I took the train into New York to get the car. And when I get off the train in Harlem, because I went to Barnard, <laughs> And if I wanted to sleep in the dorm, I, that's what I figured. I'd sleep in the dorm one night and then go on the next morning. I get off the train and I realize I left the check for the full price of the car on the seat on the train. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, I mean, you can just imagine. I was like, um, and my father would have, I mean, he. Your father was looming in your brain at that yes, point. Yes, I mean, he yeah. was strict and he was very old-fashioned formal. Most of it was great because I really learned good ethics. But, you know, that's the way he was. Mm -hmm. I was crying and there was a police station there. I don't know if it still exists. Right by the trains or like on the platform. And I went in and I told the police guys and, one, and they, they started soothing me, soothing me. Don't worry. We're going to call ahead. As soon as it pulls into Grand Central, we'll send an officer on the train. Watch what um, car do you think you were in, you know, like about where on the train, and it'll probably be there, don't worry, and we'll bring it back in a police car. Oh, my and goodness. And we be believe it or not, 20 minutes later or 30 minutes later, the police in a police car came and handed me the check. And I think that that part of the story is really a beautiful story, and I still believe that many, many people are in our best interests. Anyway, the next day, I had to go get the car in, New in Jersey. To me, New Jersey was a foreign land. <laughs> I never thought in my life I would live in New Jersey. You know what we used to call it. I won't even say it. You know? I want to hear. I mean, what is it? What was The it? armpit of the nation. Oh, we call Perth Amboy that. <laughs> well, well, Perth Amboy you know, was the armpit you know, of New Jersey. You know? yeah. So I get um, out to where, you know, these giant, giant docks that have thousands and thousands of those containers and cars and stuff. I mean, it's amazing. And I get to finally find the line for the dealer, car dealers. I get in line. And I get my turn, and the guy says, oh, yeah, okay, all right, and where's your check for, like, $280? I said, what? Now, I probably had $12 of that on me. You know, <laughs> I said, you know, I, uh, I, the check, oh, I think I turned in the check to him. But then he said, okay, I take the check, but you owe 200 and something dollars for the taxes because it was not driven 500 miles. Oh, Lord. Uh -huh. so Why did it have to be driven 500 miles? What was because that? Because that made it used. That's oh. the way it was then. Oh. Okay. So, you know, the sweet talk of that guy in Norway was all down the drain. They, they probably drove it 30 miles to hook it up on the truck, you know, right. that was taking it to the dock. So I started to cry. What else does a young lady do put in dire circumstances? And the guy at the table said, oh, forget it. Go ahead. 
and that was go. yes but you know back in the day things like that would happen if you think of a circumstance now and then you think of a circumstance that happened things were so much gentler in the past i, I don't know they just yeah. were, you know yeah. and that's why i think that we were you know uh, uh, with people that have the age and experience we had a lot more experiences because there was the freedom to have more experiences without the ramifications of something awful happening. Like you picking up two guys. Would you ever think of picking up two guys on the road anymore? No, but you no. did. You thought they were your, going to be your Prince Charming. Now you think they're serial killers. So, I mean, you know, things are, <laughs> things are different, you know? Yes. But that, that's a good story. That is a good story. So your father God. finally got his car. He did, and uh, eventually I inherited it for a couple of years, and it went to where all cars eventually go. You know, it's in yeah. car heaven somewhere, but yeah, crushed. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. So why don't you dovetail me? What could come in come well, up in your mind after well, that I, story? What I was thinking about was how a, a lot of people, whether they're retired or you know, what they're going to do after all we've gone through. What I can think about, and I, and we had a discussion about this, Barbara, before we were talking this morning about following your passion, that people are happier that have a passion. And if you have a passion and you put your nose to just achieving it, you'll get it. Even if you don't have a, like the education for it, you mm -hmm. know, um, like me at the racetrack, I wanted to ride and I knew I could ride. It wasn't like I lied and I couldn't ride, but I wanted to ride those horses and I, and, and I achieved it because that's all I could think about. You know, I, I ate, breathed and lived horses and, um, pretty much everything in my life that I've had an interest in, I've pursued into some kind of a career. And, um, you know, I was, I was very lucky in a lot of ways and a lot of ways not i've had a lot of you know hardship and tragedy in my life um you know being a widow and things like that but i did pursue things that were amazing and um you know i was thinking about the jobs i've had you know was in show business for years i worked in interesting places and um i was thinking about maybe to tell them about my time in the circus is that okay to talk about that's this? okay i'm just going to clue us in that i'm going to take out my earphones and uh have to plug in my cell phone for some power oh so okay all right you you go ahead okay well yeah after i got off the i, I stopped at the racetrack and um i was a, a voice major a theater major in college and that led me to touring um auditioning and for a show in new york and i and i got a, a, a east coast regional tour of the show which was 1776 so i was performing all the time i was doing that um and i was also going down sometimes to florida to work at in winter time and get on a couple horses at hialeah uh, for my boss and i ended up being <laughs> at night down when i went to, down to florida there was a job for a cage dancer, like a hullabaloo girl with the white go-go boots and the fringe dress. And I was up in the cage and everybody below was dancing. It was couples. It was great. 
It was called the Marco Polo. It was on Collins Avenue in Miami. It was really cool. And so after that, I thought, you know what? I got an agent, Johnny Flame, of all things. That was his name. It sounds like some 1970s grind movie, but that was his name. And um, down the road, I, I had done a lot of different things as far as um, being in a showgirl. I worked at resorts. I worked in Europe for a little bit. But my fun thing was one of the auditions I had, I had a choice of going on a cruise ship for nine months, which I would not do because I wouldn't be away from my boyfriend who ended up being my husband and I was too jealous to leave him alone, or to go into the circus. And I auditioned for Warner Brothers, had the circus a great adventure at the time before it was Six Flags. I auditioned as a zebra dancer and a showgirl and I worked in the circus for two years which was phenomenal. I loved it. It was a division of Ringling Brothers. It was the Barnum Family Swiss Circus. We had lions and tigers and bears and elephants and you name it. And um, horses, it was big, elaborate circus. If anybody had gone to Great Adventure in the years of the late 70s, they would have seen the big circus there. It was called Star Spangles and Thrills. And through Star Spangles and Thrills, I actually auditioned in a talent contest with the people in the circus. And I won the talent show with David Naughton, who was working in it. And if you remember David Naughton, he was in a picture called American Werewolf in London. He was the star. And we won the talent contest. And we got to be on the Dinosaur Show. And I got to sing Alfie on the Dinosaur Show. So I don't want to go on any longer because I could talk about that damn circus forever. But that was, I thought, very interesting and something that most people don't do. So, you know, that's it. Barbara, are you there? Where yeah, are you? hold on. Uh-oh. <clears throat> anyway, when we, my girlfriend. I, I, I'm here. Yes. My girlfriend had a party years ago. Everybody had to do a truth thing, like something about you that would shock people or wonder. And when it came to be my turn, I said, truth or dare? Is it truth or a fiction? I worked in the circus. And they went now and i said yep i did so anyway it was a wonderful memory so well, i i think it's just an incredible memory uh, but i would like to pick up on what you were saying before about how if you have a passion and you have some um lucky breaks and also some mentoring how far you can go in life you can't do everything you know, and I think sometimes people feel bad because they're very successful in some ways and in other ways they're not. You know, uh, you just have to forfeit some of the things. But for me, I think since childhood, I was an uh, outlier. I was always on the edge. I wasn't quite in the group and I wasn't quite, you know, a team player and my mind was always going through interesting, whether it was a book I read or I was asking scientific questions that nobody really wanted to answer, you know, but I, I was out there and I was different. And um, I think understanding that and having some mentors, and I had a mentor that was so amazing that he is... Would, Every time we've moved, well, I haven't moved in a million years now, but his picture is the only picture that I insisted be in my bedroom the rest of my life. 
That's how important he was to me. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit and how he gave me the, the energy that I think turned into my enchanted self work. And um, his name was Del Sylvester, and he lived in Norwalk uh, in the Rowayton area, which is very pretty. It was near the seashore. And what happened was he was 70 and I was 16. And he called our house one day and he said, I'm Mr. Sylvester. I've been going to the Board of Education meetings where my father was superintendent of schools. And I want to meet you, your family. I think your father, uh, well, my mother answered. I think your husband is outstanding and trying very hard. And I want to be helpful if I can. I want you all to come down to our house for cocktails. Well, cocktails in those days were big. Everyone had cocktails. So my mother was sort of like, I don't know, no one ever does that. You know, that's not how we meet. But we went. And he was a lovely older man with his wife. And, you know, they, they have beautiful, comfy furniture. And we looked out at the, the, um, the uh, water right outside their house. They had a little inlet. Anyway, it started a great friendship. And this guy had never gone to college. When he was 18, his father died. And his father ran a big plant, a textile plant. And Mr. Sylvester had to take over running 300 men. Well, he certainly couldn't go to college. So what he did um, was he became self-educated and he read and he followed different people for the rest of his life. He learned wherever he could. And he was, yeah, he was a self-made man, self-educated and brilliant. And we would have these very, very long talks. And he uh, encouraged me to think broadly about my life, to not get in an early rut. You know, he always said, well, 27, that's a pretty good age to get married. You see if you can last at least till then. Of course, I married at 23, but but his messages stayed with me. And he died when I was 20, turning 21, he was 75. But he made me feel different. My parents did all the right things and they also boosted me up. But they're your parents and you know they would have boosted up any child. You know, and it's a different thing. And he made me feel like I had talents that could come out in different ways the rest of my life, you know, that there wasn't, uh, that I could do it. He never said you're going to be this or you're going to be that. He kind of couched it like you're going to be a poet of your time. You're going to be able to interpret and help others interpret what's going on in their world. And this is some, a gift you're going to give them. Don't forget it. Wow. Yeah. So he kind of like set the path for you to be a psychologist. All along. He did. He did. And he also kind of set the path for the selfie filmmaking because you have to think out of the box to take something that everybody was making fun of. Oh, you got a selfie of your friend on the toilet. You know, you had to go beyond that, get out of the box. Like, my God, this is, the wave of technology for the future where every human being can have their own diary, can film their family without having to send the film out, you know, can make a funny film to get laugh at 
or do some serious drama, you know. And, sure. and I, that's where I was. I, I picked it up five years ago. It entered my soul, with the, the whole notion of selfie filmmaking. And now it's just being picked up by, right. uh, well, everybody. And, and the pandemic has made it a tool even of survival. You know, if yeah. you, all the things around the world, like when they play instruments out their windows for, you know, uh, or, or seven o'clock, they clap for the um, medical people. All that is probably filmed 90% on, on your phone. It's true. You were a groundbreaking person on this. Yeah. And, and, and I have to say that um, I'm a, one of the directors of Jersey Shore Film Festival. We, for the first time, had two or three selfie films come in this year. And it's due to, it wasn't even the pandemic. It's just a new way to make movies. Right. Like people are recording like a diary, like, um, you know, 13 Reasons Why or something. But right, right. audio, they're doing it visually. So, yeah, I mean, really. And uh, I think without someone like, well, there were many people in my life, but <clears throat> when you're lucky enough to have someone who can envision you, that's great. But let's talk when you're not that lucky. A lot of it you can still see for yourself if you look at your talents and your strengths without judging them whether you won an award or you got a hundred. You know, because a lot of the best talents, you might have only been an average student in school, but you sure knew how to uh, help the baseball team win or you knew how to play chess or you knew how to dance or you knew how to create a new club. You know, hundreds of skills that don't necessarily get rewarded. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, in, in my own right, it was the passion to love movies and look at them a certain way. And then when I read the big critics that I thought were good, I said, you know what, I agree with them. And, and I didn't have any formal training. Um, I did go to film school later, later down the road a bit, but I just thought, you know, I went to a newspaper, I said, you need a film critic, I'm going to write you, they go, well, write us a couple reviews, let's see how you are, and that's how I got in to start writing film criticism, and it went from there to there to there, but it's chutzpah, too, and I talk to a lot of people that go, oh, I'd like to do that, but uh, nobody will like it, or, oh, I'm too old, or this or that, the other thing, uh, people think very conventionally, and, um, you know, they lose their spirit, and you just got to I, I think it has to do with, it helps to be an extrovert, that's for sure. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, I mean, yeah, it's true. You had a mentor. I had the jockey who taught me how to ride the race horses. I would have been murdered if I hadn't had him. And, you know, I had my great teachers along the way. I had, um, in college, Tommy Tucker was my teacher. He was a band leader, an old-time band leader, like Count Basie. And he told me, hey, you did this show here. You're good enough. Go to New York. I'm going to get you an audition. I went to New York and I got the job. I wouldn't have had that without him. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we're lucky, Barbara. We had the parents that we had. Yes. They were oh, amazing people. When we, I hear about your parents. You hear about my parents. Mm -hmm. Our parents were, you know, can't say enough about them. You know, really. I think that that's where we're going to stop for tonight. Uh, yeah. You know, um, I'm afraid that 
our chat time is almost over and rather than me falling all, all over trying to get the uh, phone charged a few minutes longer, I think we've established a nice discussion tonight that has a lot of hope, it has a lot of optimism, and it was funny in places, and it was uh, sort of, um, you know, all the downers that happen in life, uh, too. I also and want to say that if people are listening to this and they would like us to talk about any particular subject, I mean, we're not experts, but we have our views, and, and you know, we, we'd love to take some advice from people. If there's something, a topic or something, if people watch this and they want to make a comment. Um, because, yeah, it's just something that's organic and we go with the flow. Right. And I think that uh, we try to bring, we're trying to bring some pleasure into people's lives. We're trying to help you feel that you are normal, you know, with all the quirks that we all live with, that yeah. we're still relatively normal and that we can do good deeds and that we can bring the world to a better place and uh, not to give up. And we're going to keep trying to send some of those messages. And uh, you can find me at enchantedself.com. You can always write to me at barbara.holstein at gmail.com. And Deb, you want to give any info? Yeah, you can find me on the Internet Movie Database under Debbie Stores Higgins or Deborah Higgins. And, um, you know, we're out there, we're on, we have Facebook pages, um, you know, we just are happy to, to, to share things and to connect and to just do something different because we will remember these times. We're living through history. Yes. We're living through history. Yes. We will remember. We'll remember this night. And, um, <laughs> and, and the, the way we move into the future is to bring our past with us. And exactly. And let's bring out the better parts of our past that have energy, that have support. And anyone interested in doing a selfie film on collecting selfies about how you feel about the pandemic and what it did to you or didn't do, and you can find all that information on selfiefilmmakers.com or contact me in my major, the way I already stated, enchantedself.com. So we're going to say goodbye for now. Good night, and we'll see you again. And keep safe, keep happy, and keep the summer going. Good night. <laughs> Bye. Good night. Bye.